What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Gagan Biani is the co-founder and CEO of Maven, a new platform for cohort-based courses. He was a co-founder of Udemy, a large online education company, and was also the co-founder and CEO of Sprig, a food delivery business. In this conversation, we discuss online education, cohort-based courses, building a startup, the importance of focus, scaling platforms, the Bitcoin and crypto course, and what students want from online education. I really enjoyed this conversation from Gagan, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Remote. When you use Remote, you can employ people in other countries legally and easily. They take care of international payroll, employee benefits, tax headaches, and all the paperwork for local compliance. Forget about location and hire the best person for every open role using Remote. Remote's platform is easy to use for full-time employees, contractors, and your HR team. Whether you're a major corporation or a small startup, Remote has the tools and resources to help you at a price you can afford. Even better, listeners get a special deal. Sign up for Remote today and receive 50% off your first employee for the first three months. You can check out remote.com slash POMP and enter promo code POMP to get started. Again, remote.com slash POMP and enter promo code POMP to get started today. Next up is BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Products include a high-yield interest account, a U.S. dollar loan product where they give you a U.S. dollar loan against your crypto collateral. And they also have a no-fee cryptocurrency exchange. On top of that, BlockFi just released a Bitcoin rewards credit card. It's a normal credit card, but when you swipe it, you get 1.5% back on every single purchase paid in Bitcoin rather than cash back or airline miles. To start earning today, visit BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP and get signed up. I love the credit card. I think you will too. There's something really special about every time you swipe, you earn Bitcoin. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Last but not least are my friends over at Choice. Choice is rebuilding the way you approach retirement, which starts with making it simple to include Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in your savings. More than 20,000 Bitcoiners, myself included, have already signed up to start investing. Whether we are talking about crypto or stocks, Choice lets you trade real Bitcoin and Amazon in the same place, all without paying a dime in capital gains taxes. And if you want to hold your own keys all the way to the moon, you can do that too. Either way, Choice is on a mission to give you full control over your retirement savings. So head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash POMP. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash POMP and sign up for an account today. And one more thing, you know how I feel about this, but if you have a pro that manages your money, don't take any BS. Choice has tools for them too. Take back control today and visit retirewithchoice.com slash POMP. Retirewithchoice.com slash POMP. That's exactly where you want to look for any sort of retirement account. Retirewithchoice.com slash POMP. All right, let's get into this episode with Goggin. I hope that you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, 
Bang, bang. We've got Goggin here with me. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Pop. I'm so excited. Absolutely. Let's just jump right into online education. I feel like uh, over the last couple of years, uh, people are waking up to the fact that uh, they want to learn. They want to be better educated on either specific topics or just general knowledge. Uh, but maybe the path of uh, going to a traditional university, uh, taking on hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt may not be uh, the path for everyone. doesn't mean that it can't be helpful. It just means that it's probably not for every single person. Um, and you've been in the online education space for a long time. So kind of just talk to us about like what you've seen uh, and how this industry has evolved over the last few years. Yeah, it's so funny because online education was like a, a black mark on a startup's uh, resume if you were talking about it back when we started in 2009. Uh, when we started Udemy, people basically said, oh, online education, I don't invest in that. Or online education, huh? I even had a quote from Paul Graham that he called it a, uh, a tar pit or a pit hole. I can't remember which one, but the point is like, uh, back in 2009, people didn't believe that learning on the internet was a thing. And here we are in 2021, and I'm amazed, amazed at how optimistic people are about learning over the internet. And the average person I interact with today is looking at the internet as like this vast source of knowledge. You know, everything from being able to Google or Wikipedia or YouTube basic knowledge to taking advanced online courses like cohort-based courses, people are opening up to the idea that these courses might actually be better than the courses that they took in college. And that inflection point is coming because both colleges and sort of mainstream education are losing their appeal as rising, you know, costs uh, with rising costs and as online learning is increasing in its quality. And that's a big shift that's happened recently. So that's why we're so excited about cohort-based courses because they represent a major change in, a major improvement in the quality of the online learning experience. One of the things that's fascinating is this idea that so many people were previously uh, aware of online education, but they kind of stayed away from it from an investment standpoint. Uh, was that because there was a lack of belief that like it was effective? Do you think it maybe was they didn't think they could make money investing in those types of businesses? Maybe kind of a mix? Any insight into maybe what was driving um, you know, folks from kind of avoiding the space previously? The internet in 2009 and the VC landscape was so different. Today, if you come to someone with a crazy idea about a new market that people haven't thought of investing in in the past, like let's say you started, you came in with a pet food company, right? Or you came in with a company, I don't know, about like selling selling, selling uh, plant, plant advice, right? People are much more open-minded that there might be the next big thing on the internet might be in a sector or industry that they did not expect. Whereas back in 2009, there were a much narrower and clear sets of areas in which people felt like they could make money and they mostly stayed in their lanes. Like the majority of investors had three to five categories they were looking at and that's what they invested in. So not to say that there weren't investors who were looking more broadly, but the majority of investors weren't. So that's the major change. It's not just online learning. It's digital healthcare. It's, you know, fitness. 
its entertainment broadly and its owned content, like owned content was never something VCs would invest in in the past. It's non-platform businesses. There's such a wide, and then of course, crypto, like what a crazy wild idea that came out of nowhere over the last decade, right? So you have a number of these new sectors and investors have sort of changed their thought process. There's also just like 10X more investors and more money going into startups because there's so much better returns. And so I think that's a large part of it. And online education uh, in specifics got hot over the last decade because we showed that there's money there. I mean, Udemy is going to, you know, Udemy is a multi-billion dollar company with hundreds of millions of dollars in transactional volume and revenue. And nobody believed that was possible. But now that Udemy, Coursera, Udacity, Masterclass, Kajabi, Teachable, all these companies are putting up billion dollar numbers, either in valuation or in revenue uh, or gross market merchandise value. Uh, I think a lot of investors are like, wow, okay, this is a big trend. And now if I don't invest in it, I probably am missing out on whatever the next set of opportunities are going to be in this market. For sure. And one of the things obviously that you've uh, kind of iterated on and improved over time uh, is this model that uh, is now called a cohort-based uh, course. Maybe describe a little bit about the difference between cohort-based versus the other models um, and why you're so bullish on this being uh, a highly effective way for uh, education to be uh, kind of shared on the internet. So I think since time immemorial, there have been two ways to learn. There's been the autodidactic way. I am going to go and learn on my own, right? I'm going to read books. I'm going to have a textbook uh, or I'm going to like go and do research. Uh, usually it has to do with reading until about roughly the like mid you know, 20th century when it started to become video based. So you could buy DVDs. And then, of course, the big online learning revolution was, hey, you could just watch videos on the Internet and you could pay maybe $10, $50 and learn a subject. And that was a huge revolution for autodidactic learning. Um, historically, though, autodidactic learning has always been a small percentage of the spend in learning. And actually, the bigger spend in learning has almost always been in the other format, which is cohort based courses. So if you think about any professional education you've ever been in, any seminar you've attended, even conferences, and then of course universities in any K through 12 school, they're all cohort based. And the difference is that you don't learn entirely on your own. You have a requirement and expectation to do homework or projects or you know, learn and read uh, material in advance, but there is structure to your learning. Someone has gone through and curated an experience that has a start and end date, and everyone learns at the same time together. So in a seminar, people start in the morning, they end in the afternoon, and you're all in the same group. At a, at a school, you have the same class from, you know, September all the way until August. Uh, sorry, September until, until May. And so cohort-based courses have always been a thing, but they haven't been a big thing on the internet until Zoom and Slack came around, right? And so now that Zoom and Slack are big, the internet's now ready to take the mantle of cohort-based courses and apply the same thing that we applied to video-based courses or to autodidactic learning, we're now doing it to learning that's more advanced, learning that has more structure to it where the instructor is taking you from point A to point B. 
So when you start thinking through uh, how to build a company for this, right? I'm an investor in Maven, the company you run today, uh, and I've got one of uh, the courses uh, on the platform. But how did you go from the insights of, um, okay, the world is changing. There's now new tools available. Uh, people might want to learn in this kind of old model, but in a new venue on the internet um, to actually let's start a company around this. And, and we think that we can build a product and, and raise capital and, and kind of commercialize it to some degree. There's so many ways to come up with a, a startup idea. I'm going to tell you my philosophy and it works for me because I'm a, you know, I'm my own type of entrepreneur. And I think it works for a majority of entrepreneurs, but there are other ways. I don't start companies uh, with the idea that I want to start a company. That's just not how I get inspiration. I'm not excited to make a lot of money or build a really big organization that like, you know, look at me, I'm on Forbes. Like that's just not my mentality going in. Um, I'm happy to be that type of entrepreneur and I'm not gonna complain about the benefits, but that's not my focus. My focus is uh, I like to live my daily life and to start to think about what's next in the context of what would I like to do for fun and what would I like to do to have an impact on the world? And almost always that involves joining companies, starting projects. This creative phase is highly um, focused not on, oh, I need to build a company because I think that wraps my ego too much in the goal. And instead, it's a process of just uh, learning and, and trying to figure out what's interesting. And so I spent 12 months and this time, this is my third time starting a startup, probably like seventh or 10th company, but, but third startup. And this time I actually did it in a really structured way. I told myself my fiance was going to business school at Oxford. And I basically said, she starts in September and ends in the following September. So it was 12 months. And I'm going to give myself 12 months to figure out what I want to do next. And I had no idea what that was going to be. I looked into politics. I looked into conserv conservation in Africa. I looked into writing a book. And then I started writing on the internet. And it was kind of around that time where I was like, wow, the way that I keep learning how to write a book and writing on the internet is taking online courses. I took Tucker Max's course about writing a book. And then I took David Perel's course on writing online. And that's when the insight came to me. It was like, oh my God, this is huge. What an opportunity. The types of courses I'm taking today that are fully digital are completely different from the video-based courses we were creating on Udemy. Like back in 2009, when I wanted to learn about education or learn about startups, I went online and read a lot and I watched a lot of YouTube videos. And so I noticed a new pattern happening in my autodidactic self, right? Which was hey, I wanna, I'm learning through video-based courses. I'm interacting with people. I'm going on Zoom. I'm doing exercises and then bring them to my group of peers. And that's sort of when I started to get interested in the idea that cohort-based courses could be a business. Then I started diving deeper into cohort-based courses and just sort of went down the rabbit hole. And I explored all sorts of different options. I thought about just launching a course myself. Uh, and I did a few of those as test runs to learn more about the market. I also went and worked with businesses that were already building cohort-based courses and sort of consulted or advised for them. So I worked with you know, uh, a guy in the EU who was building a cohort-based course for entrepreneurs. I worked with a company in the States that was building cohort-based courses. And uh, at this point, I hadn't even named the category. I just sort of knew that these were something in education that involved Zoom. 
Let's call it that. Then at some point, you know, sorry. Yeah. So, and once you kind of said, okay, like this is a new thing, what do you do from there? Right. So then I get to the point where I'm like, oh, this is a new thing. What are the ways I could tackle this market? And I just let myself think about them. And one day it hits me. The right model for this market is a platform-based approach because of the way the internet is, because of the way things are. And this is like a a choice of business model. I think there are usually three to five options for how you can go. And I really believe in being ruthless about picking the right option because the option is going to decide everything for the future. And so we could have been a creator of core-based courses. I could have been a publisher. You know, I could have decided to be a marketplace where we're going to sell core-based courses on behalf of instructors. And eventually I could have just built software. We decided this platform approach was going to be the right one. Um, And then I went and started to test that out and raise money for it and, and build it. What's fascinating to me about um, kind of the path that you took is uh, one word that I kind of just, when I think of you, I think of is focus, right? Uh, the, the thing that uh, people internally know that maybe people externally don't know is for a long time, you didn't have a name for the company, right? It was just, you, I think you even had raised money at one point uh, from investors and still didn't have an official name for the business. And so maybe talk through just like the trade-offs of like, how did you evaluate uh, what should you focus on? What maybe isn't as important? Um, and, and then kind of how you divide up your time and attention across the the you know multitude of things that uh, you could pursue, you know, in the early stages where uh, resources are light and there's just a lot of work to do. In my mind, startups have a very clear pattern of how they are built. And I strictly follow that pattern and focus all my attention in any given stage within that pattern of what is the highest value thing or the most important thing I need to accomplish in order to get to the next stage. So in the ideation stage, you just heard me talk about my goal is just to figure out like, what do I want to do next and to leave it really broad. So that stage needs to be highly actually goal, goal agnostic essentially, and just a creative phase. So there's a creative phase. That's the first phase in a startup. The second phase is you have a vision or an inkling of an idea, and you have to test whether or not that idea has any sort of legs and has what I would call product market fit, but you're kind of product market fit has multiple stages. So the first stage is just, Um, do I think that this has a chance of having product market fit? And that's the stage that you met me, that we met each other in, which was, I thought cohort-based courses were going to be big. I had already seen a bunch of courses be successful, but I didn't know for sure whether or not we could build a platform. And I didn't know the risks or costs associated with that. And so I was pretty ruthlessly focused on just proving that out. And so for the first six months, you know, our team was almost all business people. There weren't a lot of engineers on the team because I didn't think the risk was whether or not we could build a great product. I thought the risk was whether or not we could sell the product. And so I spent all my time trying to work with people like you and you were kind enough to be one of our, you you were kind of to be our first instructor and have also been our most successful instructor. But I learned a lot from working with you and with Lee Jin and Lenny Ruchitsky and, uh, and Saha Lavingia, our first four instructors. And through that process, I started to say, oh, okay, this has an option. And this is, and we started to refine, right? We learned that, for example, 
four week courses might be a little too long. Maybe we should shorten them a little bit so we can do one or two week courses and they're just as effective and actually students like them more. We learned how to interact with a, a, an instructor like you, like you've done a great job bringing on Colton, right? Having a partner is a big thing. So we know now that having a partner is an important part of this whole process and we need to make sure there's room for that. So we figured out our revenue share during that time. So this discovery period was all about narrowing it on product market fit. And then we said, okay, we've got it. We've got this, you know, we've got this thing. We think it's going to work. We're going to start introducing it to the world. And that's when we launched the name and the website. And uh, now we're in this phase of, okay, we've proven that with a few people, we can definitely get courses off the ground and make them really successful. So, you know, we've done over a million dollars of course sales. They're really uh, growing and, and it looks like that's going to be a big opportunity. But how do we then make this accessible to a wider variety of people? Because we think the vision of, of Maven is that there are thousands or hundreds of thousands of potential instructors out there and not just 10. And so we can't handhold everyone. So now we're in the phase of just proving that we have a product and an offering that can uh, meet the next phase, which is, can we prove that a lot of instructors love Maven? And we're starting to prove that. So you can see that I'm very phase driven in my approach and focus on whatever the highest risk potential thing that could, could kill the business. And what's the highest benefit that could make the business successful and everything else is just noise. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because uh, I think people who have an academic understanding uh, or, or maybe uh, have never built a company before or, or invested in them usually think of entrepreneurs as risk takers, right? People who seek out risk, they, they enjoy it, they thrive on it. Uh, but in reality, uh, and what exactly you're highlighting here is they actually are risk mitigators, right? They, they think of all of the risks and they work to try to remove that risk from the business because it increases the odds of success. Um, and if you can kind of do it effectively over and over and over again, uh, you end up building a pretty big business, pretty uh, successful business. And so it's it's fascinating to just kind of hear you articulate that uh, in the way that you did. For me, I, I think what's so fascinating about um, this entire experience, right? I mean, we've done over 400 students, I think now through the, uh, the cohort-based uh, sessions. And there's this element of uh, information transfer, right? So information that we've put together um, and, and kind of vetted and, and made sure it's high quality, it's effective, it really delivers on the promise uh, that people are looking for when they come. Uh, but also there's an element of the community. And I've been shocked, I think, from my perspective, uh, how many people at the end tell us, you know, look, one of the most important parts of this or one of the uh, most enjoyable parts of it was actually the other people I went through uh, the course with. And so for you, uh, you, you know, you've got this really interesting uh, experience where you saw uh, kind of those uh, single player online courses before, right? So I take it and I don't really have that community aspect. Do you also see that across other courses uh, on the platform where folks say that the community aspect uh, is kind of a core thing? Or is that something that maybe is specific to Bitcoin and, and kind of the crypto industry? It's universal. People buy cohort-based courses for the promise of the outcomes. They're always outcome-focused. Like, I want to get a job in crypto. I'm going to take Pops Crypto course. I want to learn more about this subject. I'm going to take you know, this person's course, they almost always leave uh, with a feeling of community. And so if you read the feedback before and after, it's so different because people don't realize how valuable it is to just meet like a hundred other people who are as into this thing that they're into 
And also the uh, knock-on effects of that are super uh, valuable, right? So think about college, right? A lot of people, like the NPS for college is shockingly high, net promoter score for college. People actually still really love college. And if you read uh, why people love college, very few people will talk about the education. Almost everyone will say, yeah, I, those were the best learning experiences of my life uh, in terms of like growing up and mostly in terms of people they met. And so, you know, cohort-based courses, cohort-based courses provide that same level of magic. They have this magic of like, you're going into breakout rooms, you're meeting people of the same interests, they have similar backgrounds. And, you know, as we get better and better at building these courses, we're going to get better at matching people with their friends. And we're going to get better at making sure that that experience is truly, um, truly special uh, of the community that they find. And I think people are going to continue to take these courses, not for just the educational aspect, which you can get in a book or on a Wikipedia article sometimes, but actually for the accountability, the rigor that it forces you to have as well as the community. Yeah. And, and I guess part of this is, um, you know, I would ask you, how are you scaling a marketplace? You've used the word platform a few times. Um, so maybe talk a little bit just about the, the product and, and how you see uh, building that, right? Early on, you said that you had a lot of uh, more business folks because uh, you felt that was a risk of, could you actually onboard uh, the instructors and, and kind of use them to uh, want to do this? Um, but it sounds like now you've really focused on the software and building uh, out the product. So just talk a little bit, you know, marketplace platform or how you think about that and how you scale it. Yeah. To be fair, we're still at the point where business folks is the main way that we deliver value to instructors. So uh, our main value right now is if you've never taught a cohort-based course before, it is way harder than it sounds. You have to figure out how to build a community. You have to figure out great content. And if you're charging like a thousand bucks, you know, the quality of what you have to deliver is much higher than what you've ever done. So if you're good at podcasting or conference talks, this is a totally different ballgame. There's another level of density and there's another level of community building that just don't exist in traditional uh, talks that you give when you aren't getting, you know, paid for them. And so what Maven does primarily is we teach people how to build cohort-based courses. And that is like a huge value add. As we're growing, what we're realizing is eventually people are going to know how to teach cohort-based courses and we need to make those cohort-based courses better. And so the model that we pursue or where we're headed is building software that makes Maven indispensable as a product that makes your course better. So we just talked about community, right? I think eventually Maven should be able to solve the community problem for you. Right now, we solve it by teaching you or we actually taught Colton how to build a community and helped, helped, helped onboard him and help him think about through it. But eventually, actually, we can match people for you. We can help help students like teach each other on the platform and therefore, you know, allow the instructor to have a course that's broader than what they are. And so we're moving towards a world where Maven will be a platform on which if you build your course, your course will be so much better uh, that it's worth building it on Maven. And we aren't necessarily a marketplace because we think that the goal of Maven is to have uh, is to enable the best instructors, and we can't enable the best instructors if we bring all the if we bring all the demand because it, it changes your business model. So if you look at Udemy, Udemy doesn't enable the best instructors. Udemy enables the best students, 
because Udemy is a marketing machine. And, and the thing that Udemy does super, super well is we bring, at Udemy, we bring students to courses, but the instructors at the top end who can bring their own students, they don't want to teach on Udemy because of that problem. And so Maven's goal is to take less of a percentage, be more of an enabler than a creator, uh, and let the creators build their own courses and just make you as successful as humanly possible. Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting as, um, you know, I've done a couple of these now, uh, learning, you know, why are people coming? And uh, I thought it was going to be for uh, the education, for the information, right? Walk away, hey, I didn't know something, now I know it. Uh, kind of check that box, that was worth it. Uh, but what I found was, and you said earlier, it's like an outcome-based thing, right? They're, they're coming for uh, not just the education. In my case, they're coming because they want to get a job in the industry. So you have to meet a certain quality bar uh, and you need to be able to um, go ahead and, and then kind of hand them off or, or help them, right? If that's what they're coming for. Uh, but I, I don't know if it'd be possible for a platform uh, to bring those types of folks to me, right? It's almost like a very specialized audience, uh, a very specialized customer base. And so, um, you know, I'm much better suited to do that than a platform is, uh, but the platform is much better suited to kind of empower me with all the tools and, and um, you know, kind of operational excellence than, uh, th than I could do on my own, right? Yeah, I mean, just to play this back to you, I think the thing that makes you so impressive as a creator is just how willing you are to uh, partner, offload, uh, sort of like work with others to make your own world bigger. And what I found at Maven is that there are, uh, and, and with creators in general, is there's a there's a real value in the multi multiplicative approach of having partners in different things. So like at Maven, as an example, it would be insane if we were gonna like run Maven without partnering with things like Zoom, we partner with Slack, right? We, we use a lot of other, and then of course we partner with investors, right? We have A16Z, we have you, you know, investing in our company. And so we really believe in this multiplicative approach to success. And you've just done a great job because you brought in Colton and you incentivized him. And I think that was like the smartest move I've seen anyone make. We're actually going to try and replicate it uh, to say, hey, if I have someone else who is on my team helping me build this and I give him the responsibility and just let him run with it. Uh, and then I focus on what I'm good at, which is teaching and obviously audience building. Those are your two main strengths. I mean, you're an incredible teacher. I watched, you know, a lot of your first week, you know, your first lectures, and I'm sure that you've improved since then even more, but you were just a natural. Um, and I think that's what Maven does. Maven provides you this, like, it's just one of many tools that you should have in your tool set as a creator. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm pretty proud of the way that you've, that, that has worked out with you. And I, I hope we can have more creators who think of it in the way that you do, because I think you've, you know, you've run your course, you, you've been the most successful creator on the platform in part because of your willingness to partner with Colton. And then of course it, with us as well, I think. Yeah. And you know, for those that don't know this about me, I'm a huge believer in this idea of like single threaded leadership. Right. And it's just, uh, for me, I mean, I got a million things going on. If I literally spent all day trying to do all of them by myself, I would get nothing done instead by essentially finding somebody who, uh, you know, not, is not only competent is, is ambitious and, um, you know, kind of is, uh, is successful in their own right and saying to them, listen, you're going to be responsible for this specific body of work uh, and you're going to reap the benefits if it's successful uh, and you're also going to be to blame if it's not. 
um, it, it provides that focus, right? It provides that kind of accountability uh, and responsibility. And so, um, you know, it, it's something that uh, over the years I've just learned and, and kind of replicated over and over again. And I, I also have a, a point of, I think, when somebody's responsible for something, uh, they want it to be high quality, right? You're, you're much more likely to uh, kind of skimp on quality if it's the 14th most important thing you're doing doesn't seem like you need to focus on quality as much as the number one most important thing you're doing. Uh, and so when you have somebody who that's their dedicated job or, or, or kind of focus, you just naturally get higher quality as well. So it's like higher quality feeds back into more success, more success leads to, you know, greater focus, greater focus leads back into um, kind of higher quality. And so it's this like very nice, uh, you know, kind of self-reinforcing uh, mechanism that, you know, so far has worked really well. And, and maybe it's been a big part of that. Colton's been a big part of that. Uh, we'll just keep going. Amazing. Yeah. We're, we're so excited. And I think that the future of, what you're doing is is so such a big opportunity, right? I mean, imagine if there's hundreds or thousands of instructors like you out there, and I think that eventually there'll be hundreds of thousands of, of people who are taking their time to teach the new generation, the next generation of leaders, uh, what they know. And you are just so much better equipped to teach people crypto than any professor at any university. Right. I mean, I'd put you up there as as better than literally almost anyone. And that's crazy that you in your current life could never be a university professor, but you can be an instructor on Maven. You can be an instructor on the Internet via podcasting and things. And so I'm really excited about finding more people like you who want to build their their brand and their knowledge and teach people what currently is not really knowledge that is available out there. Um, you know, what you teach in your course is pretty unique. Can't find it anywhere else. Speaking of uh, hundreds of thousands of instructors, uh, before we get to the rapid fire questions, just fast forward maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, how do you see Maven kind of evolving and, and what does this look like in kind of the steady state once uh, you've been able to really build out the team, build out the platform um, and, and get a, a pretty big number of instructors on the platform? Maven's goal is to be the university of the future. You know, we really believe that there's an opportunity right now to reset the online, uh, the, the, the education system broadly through the internet, through the online learning um, angle. And so we think that over the next decade, uh, we are gonna inspire and, and empower a, uh, the largest faculty in the world. We wanna build the largest faculty of the best instructors in the world. And we think that those people look a lot more like you and Lee Jin uh, than they do look like, you know, someone who got spent seven years getting a PhD and then is getting tenure at some, some mid-range university. And so over time, what does this mean? Well, it means that as we have more and more courses, eventually we can provide more and more outcomes. So what if you are taking a course on crypto and you also have a course on recruiting and then you also have a course on the creator economy? Well, if you combine these three things, you can now work for a crypto-focused creator economy company as a recruiter, right? And so you can imagine all sorts of different like opportunities where if you're on Maven and you're learning, you can learn from 
and you know Anthony Pompliano about one thing, you can learn from Lee Jin about another thing, you can learn from Lenny Richitsky on product management or learn from someone on recruiting. And all these things combined can become a much better education than what you can get uh, you know, anywhere else in the world. And so our goal is to empower creators to become those professors of the future so that eventually there's you know, literally on like thousands or hundreds of thousands of options for people to learn that are far more effective and more engaging and higher quality than what they have today in the current system. What's been the most uh, surprising and maybe the most fun thing since you started uh, going down this path uh, till today? The most surprising thing is just how hard a cohort-based course is to build and run. I'm like, I'm like amazed every time at Wes Kao, my co-founder. She always is like, you know, this is hard. This is challenging. And I think I've been just amazed at watching Wes come up with ways to make it easier for people, you know? And so we're like getting better and better every couple of months at just making it easier so that if you are thinking about running a core based course, you can go through like our three to six week program and you'll be three to six months ahead of what you would be, or maybe even two years ahead of what you would be without it. The most fun thing, honestly, is uh, team building. I, I, I like, I, you know, I, yesterday my executive assistant um, posted on on Instagram a post that she had been waiting on for a couple of months, and she just talked about how she found she feels like she found home uh, being at Maven, and honestly, that like that made me tear up. I, I really was just amazed at the. It, it, it's just so fun to be uh, an important part of people's lives. Um, so team building to me isn't just team building within Maven, uh, you know, within the company. But another anecdote is, uh, you know, we have a, a, an instructor, Sahil Bloom, who bought his first house uh, using proceeds from his Maven uh, course. And so just like the impact we can have on people, uh, the team being a broader group than just the uh, impact on my employees, but also the impact on our instructors. And then, of course, the impact on students like you had a student recently who got a job in crypto. You've had many of them now at this point who got jobs in crypto as a result of taking your course. The impact is just it, it's hard to beat. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, before I let you go, um, I usually ask everyone the same three questions. You'll get to ask me one at the end. What's the most important book you think you've ever read? <laughs> the most important book I've ever read. Uh, I, I, th I think that the most important book is not, it's not going to fit what most people think. Okay, but let's it, fuck it. The book is A Tragedy of Great Power Politics by John Mearsheimer. Okay, why, why that book? And I, I don't even agree with everything he says. Uh, but the reason it's the most important book is because it opened my eyes to a form of thinking, um, first principles thinking in a more of a show than a tell way. So this book is just so incredibly well-written and clear that it, it introduced me to the idea of writing and thinking from a first principles way and explaining the world in a certain way. And it also explained to me the downside of that, which is that Mearsheimer kind of misses a lot of the nuances of how great power politics actually works. Um, but it, it was such a study for me. And I spent a lot of years of my life thinking about politics and how it works at, at that level because of this book.
That's a great answer. Uh, second question is from our friends over at Eight Sleep. I now finally am sleeping on the Eight Sleep bed, and they sleep five or six hours. I just turn it freezing cold, and I sleep like eight or nine hours uh, to the point where if I'm ever not home, uh, if I'm traveling or something, I can't wait to get back because I know I'm going to get a better night of sleep. Uh, and it's been completely life-changing for me. What's your sleep schedule, especially as you've kind of started the business and, and started to grow it now? I, I'm absolutely a, a nine-hour asleep guy. So I get, I get nine hours of sleep 90% of the, of the nights. I pretty much always throw in the towel around 10 or 11. I go to bed. I also crank down the temperature. I don't have an eight sleep yet because I'm kind of in transition, but I do plan on buying one. Um, nice. And I, uh, I sleep eight to nine hours every night and I wake up and I, I almost always have my mornings blocked off, not just so that I can work, but also so that I can sleep if I end up sleeping really late. Yeah. That uh, being able to get nine hours, like ninety percent of the time, that's fantastic. So you are uh, you are an A plus student for that question uh, <laughs> compared to most people. Uh, next one's more fun. Aliens? Are you a believer or a non-believer? Uh, I'm a believer. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to imagine. I haven't spent enough time doing actual math on it, but it's hard to imagine with the size of the universe that there aren't aliens out there. I think the thing that people might miss, though, that I personally haven't, again, haven't done the math on, but is that uh, aliens are are out there, but time and space is is is, is a is a do, do, it's it's a two part thing, and so the question is not just where are the aliens, but when are they, and I don't know if it's clear that they are going to overlap with us uh, in the way in the time and space. Because of the because of the fact that it's two factor and not one factor, I uh, literally that's exactly what I think is that they exist, but we'll never come in contact with them because they're probably too far away or different timing. Uh, so I, I definitely agree. Uh, you could ask me one question to uh, finish up. What do you got for me? T- tell me about the the biggest downside to moving to Miami. <laughs> what do you miss the most? It's always going to be people like you just wherever you live somewhere, uh, you make a bunch of friends. I've got uh, a number of friends that I'm very close with that are still in New York. Um, You know, they've come down here to visit. We've obviously gone back and and seen them. Uh, But that's really it. Uh, You know, and it's kind of a a weird like downside because uh, just as you can't spend as much time with certain people, uh, it opens up the opportunity to spend more time with other people. Um, And and so you got to kind of, uh, take that balance of, uh, if you have high quality friends and, you know, wherever you were and in, let's say Miami, uh, it, it's okay. Uh, but that's probably the biggest downside. It's just, you get used to hanging out with certain friends and, and enjoy it. And then uh, if you move, uh, they're not there anymore. Right. And so you can FaceTime and do all that. It's just not the same. Yeah. I, I have the same feeling about any place that I've lived in. So I can totally relate to that. Well, Pom, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this. Absolutely. Where can we send people to find you on Twitter and uh, find out more about Maven? Maven uh, is easy. It's maven.com, M-A-V-E-N. Uh, very proud of, of having gotten that domain. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm also very easy because my name is very unique. So I'm assuming it'll be in the show title, et cetera, but it's Gagan Biani, 
on Twitter and it's gaganbiani.com if you want to join my newsletter again on the website. Uh, Gaganbiani, Maven, pretty easy. That is uh, very simple. So I highly suggest people go follow you on Twitter too. You got some great, uh, great tweets. So keep that up as well. And uh, we will definitely do this again in the future as you guys keep going. Sounds good. Thanks, Pop. Really appreciate it.